Amen. I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Luke, chapter 2. Some of you know a little bit of my kind of spiritual story that I grew up not attending church, never really attended church at all until I was a teenager. And later in my teenage years, I became a Christian as a result of the student ministry. It was a, a marvelous and pretty radical change that took place in my life. I began working as a teenager. Actually, at 13 years old, I picked pecans uh, out in the s- suburb of Weatherford, Texas, as if it would have a suburb out near Peaster. Anybody know where Peaster, Texas is? Probably not. So I picked pecans as a teenager, 10 cents a pound. Didn't make too much money doing that, but did it. And then I worked, uh, beginning at about 15 years old, I worked at Handyman Hardware Store in Weatherford, Texas. And uh, I had a pretty good experience there. I learned the difference between hammers and, you know, a metal screw and a wood screw and those kinds of things. That was always helpful to me. After I became a Christian, I began working at uh, a bank in Weatherford as a teller and would do all different uh, kinds of things, would keep some books and that kind of thing. I really enjoyed that, continued doing that through college. But I tell you that story because I remember as I began working at the bank, you know how banks have this music, this ambiance that's always going on behind, you know, the work and the hustle and bustle of of that business. Uh, Christmas music was playing, and I remember my first Christmas as a Christian. And I remember being there in the bank and hearing that music and really noticing it for the first time and listening to the words. And those words had great and significant meaning. And it was awesome. And so my Christmases, I normally have a moment or two where I reflect back and I think about my life before Christ. And what a difference Jesus has made in my life. And I have one or two moments, I hope you do also, where great thankfulness comes over your heart and uh, you just feel so humbled that God would love you and that he would send his son here in that manger to ultimately grow up and to die on a cruel cross for our sin and to be resurrected in life and glory. So we're going to look, we're going to turn our attention today toward that manger, that trough, and what had been up to this point a very private experience for this family now here in Luke chapter 2 verses 8 through 14 becomes a very public moment. And we're going to talk about the public character of that moment, the announcement of Jesus' birth by the angels to the shepherds answers a very simple but profound question. And I think in in the mess of Christmas, we can lose this very simple message, and I want us to return to the simple fact of why Jesus came. Why Jesus came. And Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, is going to answer that question for us. Now, up to this point, Zechariah had gone into the temple... And he had kind of doubted God, and you remember the story. He was made mute, couldn't speak. So he was married to Elizabeth, which was Mary's cousin, and they were expecting a child also that would be born also around the same time of Jesus. Ultimately, that would be John the Baptist. So that had already happened as far as Zechariah uh, having this experience there in the temple. 
the angel Gabriel had already come to Mary at this point and announced uh, God's purpose for her. Uh, the angel had already come to Joseph up to this point and reminded Joseph that God's in charge, that yes, you are to take Mary as your wife and you are to love her and you're to raise this child and you will call him Jesus as his father. You're given the responsibility to call him Jesus. And so he uh, took that calling and now they had already traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem and they were in Bethlehem and had no place to stay. Because all the hotels were booked. There was not a Motel 6. There was no place in all of Bethlehem. Because why? Because Caesar Augustus had ordered a census to be taken. And so everyone was returning to their hometowns to be counted. And so they were returning to Bethlehem. There was no room because it was so crowded in Bethlehem. And Mary now began to give birth to the baby. And they had to go into a horse's trough. For the king of the world to be born. Well, let's read about what happens here in this announcement. Luke 2, verse 8. And, in other words, as all this other stuff was going on, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified, the Bible says. Absolutely terrified. Verse 10, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. A very simple message, why Jesus came. Let me share with you three reasons why Jesus came. Jesus came, first of all, for everyone. He came for everyone. Look in verse 10. The angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Everyone, every race, every ethnicity, every nation, every socioeconomic status, Jesus came for everyone. Now notice the direction of God and the orientation of God here in the birth of Jesus. Notice how he came. He came to shepherds, first of all, to make this announcement. Not, not the highest rung of the socioeconomic ladder, right? Shepherds, stinky shepherds, living, not just kind of working, living out in the fields, keeping watch over their sheep. Came to shepherds to announce the news. Used a very common man with a common trade, a carpenter, to be the father, the earthly father of the Savior. To raise this child in the formative years of his life, a working man, a blue-collar man. He was born in a manger, a manger, not a hotel, not a palace, but a trough, a barn, and he was born 
a baby. He came to this world as a baby. He didn't ride in on a horse as a general. He didn't ride in as a military or political leader. God was saying something to you and me about who he is in how Jesus was born. This is what it says. God stooped to the lowest rung of the ladder for you and for me to say something about who he is. And he went to the lowest part, to the lowly, to say that all men and women are included in the good news of Jesus' birth. Again, all people groups, all races, all nations. Rich, poor, he came for all. I heard a friend tell a story this week about when he was a child and he was sitting on Santa's knee at some mall or something and he was talking to Santa and Santa said, well, what do you want for Christmas? And, and he began to talk about all these toys that he wanted for Christmas and it was funny to explain the toys because we, we were similar ages and he was describing toys that I wanted when I was a kid, you know. You remember the old football, uh, magnetic football game where, you know, you've got the, the men that are on there and they're, anyway, if you know what I'm talking about, it was pretty cool. And uh, anyway, he was describing that and uh, he, he said that Santa said to him, well, okay, have you been good? And he said to Santa, well, Santa, you're supposed to know, <laughs> right? It's just like the song. You better watch out. You better not pout. You better not cry. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He knows if you've been sleeping. He knows if you're awake. He knows if what? You've been bad or good. That's right. So Santa knows. And so Santa's gifts are conditional. <laughs> if you're not good, you get coal. But if you're good, you get gifts. Uh, through Christ Jesus. God knows. He knows if we've been bad or good. And I'm so glad he came for the bad. That's my category. And if you're honest with yourself, that's your category. His love is unconditional. He came for all people. He came to show love to all people. Those who think something of themselves and those who think nothing of themselves. He came for everyone. Secondly, Jesus came to save. He came to save. Look in verse 11. Today in the town of David, what has been born? A Savior has been born to you, and He is Christ the Lord. Jesus came for a very simple and specific reason. He came to save. And so that Christmas carol that we sing, What Child Is This? What Child Is This? Is really the key question. Who is Jesus is the question of the ages. And the Bible here clearly says that He is a Savior. And so the obvious response to that is to save us from what? And we've got to be crystal clear about what Jesus came to save us from because that question really makes all the difference in our lives. And some people are a little confused about that. He came to save. And that's a word that kind of gets lost in the vocabulary of church, doesn't it? Saved. And I know why. TV preachers get saved and you're like, what? Saved? And, you know, it's fire and brimstone, and, but it's a key word. 
And it describes exactly what needs to take place with you and me. Jesus is a savior. We need to be saved. The idea is to be rescued or to be delivered. Now, we would understand that term if there was somebody that was drowning and a lifeguard would go out and rescue them in some way. They would save their life. Somebody was in a car accident. You pulled them out of the car before the car burned. They would be saved in that situation. Somebody had a medical condition and a doctor could go in and and do an emergency surgery of some kind that would save their life. That's the idea here. Jesus does save. The problem with the word in today's world and the way that we kind of nice things up, the problem with using that word is that it clarifies our desperate condition. That we are desperate. And we don't need just some help. We don't need just some propping up. We need a savior. We need to be saved. And how it gets twisted is we come to church and we hear about how Jesus kind of fixes our problems. Or how we need to be saved from unfulfillment, that we're not fulfilled in our lives in some way. Certainly, Christ has a role of bringing fulfillment, but it's not his primary purpose to make sure that you're content in your life. Or we have troubles in our career or in our marriage, and you know Jesus is supposed to fix all our problems. Certainly, God brings solutions to problems. But that's not his primary purpose. It's not his primary purpose to save us from our unfulfillment or to save us from our troubles. He is here. He came to save us from our sin. Because not everybody is unfulfilled. and Not everybody is going through a time of trouble and hardship. But what is true about each and every one of us is that each and every one of us are sinners who need a Savior. Each and every person on the earth has at one point in time in their lives turned their back on God, has broken God's law, and as a result of that have been separated from Him and are on a path toward a godless eternity without deliverance and rescue and without salvation. That's just the truth. And so... Jesus came not to just give us some answers to some of life's hardships. He came to rescue us from our desperate position. And that is we are sinners. And we need a Savior. And that's good news of great joy. That on that day, in the town of David, in Bethlehem, a Savior was born. Somebody once said, if we needed education, God would have sent a teacher. If we needed money, God would have sent a banker. If we needed government, God would have sent a politician. But we needed forgiveness from sin. And so God sent a Savior. Jesus came for everyone. Jesus came to save. And then finally, Jesus came because he is worthy. He is the one who was worthy to come. The angel said to the shepherds, 
that he is a Savior and he is Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord. Now, this is his title. This is not his earthly name. His earthly name was Jesus. And Joseph was given the responsibility to name him Jesus. This goes beyond his name. It goes to his title. He is Christ the Lord. The Greek words Christos and Kyrios. Let's look at those and see what they mean because this has powerful implications for you and me as we understand the birth of Jesus there on that day. He is, first of all, Christ. And what the angels were essentially saying was he is Christ and Lord. That's what it means. Christ the Lord. Christ and Lord. Christ means anointed one. Anointed one. And you go back all the way to the Old Testament, you'll see in Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 and 26, a prophecy concerning Messiah that the anointed one would come. And the Greek equivalent to that is the word Christos, which also means anointed one, one set apart. And of course, in this context, it's one who is set apart and anointed by God. But think about in the Bible, who were the ones that were anointed? Who were the ones that were anointed? Well, kings were anointed. Kings were anointed. Essentially, the angels are saying, Christ, Jesus, is God's king. And the terms used in Revelation, King of kings and Lord of lords. Any, anybody heard the hallelujah chorus this Christmas yet? One of these years, I'm going to go down. They play that thing downtown, and you pay money, and you get to sing with it. I'm going to go down there one time and do, <laughs> to do that. What a powerful, powerful reminder. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what the angels were saying. So kings get anointed. Who else gets anointed? High priests get anointed. And we learn from Hebrews that Jesus is the great high priest, the once and for all mediator between man and God. He is the great high priest. Prophets were also anointed. Prophets were anointed to be God's spokespeople. To bring God's message to men and women. That's who Jesus was. God's king. The great high priest. The great prophet of God. That's what it means that he is Christ as being anointed. But then secondly, he is Christ the Lord. So whereas Christ has to do with anointing, Lord has to do with authority. Leadership. Rulership. Rightful, valid authority. And this is the most fundamental confession that any person can make. And that is Jesus is Christ the Lord. It is that confession that our salvation is based. And it is that confession that the angels proclaimed there that day. And because of this fact... Because of the power of what was happening there on that day 2,000 years ago. Because of this reality that was going to occur, the angels just praised God. Glory to God in the highest. The Bible said there was a multitude of angels there on that night. The shepherds are out in the middle of fields at night and an angel shows up. The Bible says he was terrified. The word has to do with panic. I mean, stricken with fear. 
And it wasn't only just one angel, but it was now a multitude of angels that were there. And I thought about, when did we see this in the Bible? When did we see angels that would show up on earth? And I see only one other reference in the Old Testament where maybe it would have happened, but not everybody saw them. Here, this was a very public display. And so while there were visions of angels in heaven that people had, we read about those in Daniel and in Revelation. Nowhere do we see a multitude of angels showing up on earth. And here's what I think happened. There was a celebration in heaven. And it just spilled over onto the earth. And a multitude of angels. How many? We don't know how many. The word murion is used in Revelation chapter 5. Remember in that great moment in Revelation where it's describing the throne and the Lamb. And it says that around the throne of God there were thousands and thousands. That's the word murion. Thousands and thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. Angels were there. Biggest word in the Greek language for any number is the word myrion. Ours used to be billion. Now it's trillion. I think they're going to invent something else after trillion. I remember not even knowing what a trillion was. Now it's thrown around like it's a penny. A myrion. And... Ten myrions times ten myrions. A hundred million angels is the ideal. It's hyperbole. So many that you cannot count. And so we don't know how many were there in Bethlehem on that day, but there was a multitude of them, and you can bet it was an amazing sight for these shepherds to witness. And they were all singing praise. Glory to God in the highest. You ever kind of boiled something over out of your pot? I was doing that not long ago. I was boiling some ravioli and got watching a football game on TV. And I'm, you know, excited and forgot about the pot in the kitchen. And some, you know, so it starts boiling over and I start hearing steam and all this kind of stuff. And I run in there and turn it off. That's the idea. The celebration just spilled over and the overflow from heaven landed on the earth. And a multitude of angels were there saying glory to God in the highest. Why? Why? Because Jesus was born. That's the only reason. They had waited since the creation of the world, since the fall of man, since the ups and downs and the disappointments and the victories of the people of Israel for thousands of man years The angels had waited, and now it had arrived. And heaven erupted. Glory to God in the highest. And now peace on earth, goodwill to men. A Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. And it is good news of great joy that we bring to you. What a night. What a night. What a holy, divine night. Jesus came for everyone. He came for you. And if you haven't experienced that, if you don't know that, God loves you. He came for you. He came for me. He came for one reason. 
to save you from your sin. And He came because He is the one, Christ, the anointed Messiah, Lord of lords and King of kings. He is worthy to have come, to be born in that manger, to die for the sins of mankind and to be resurrected in glory. And that's why the angels sang there on that night. And I was reading this and saying this and I thought about that wonderful Christmas hymn, O Holy Night. It's probably my favorite one. And I don't know if you've ever stopped long enough to actually read or listen to the words. But it is a powerful hymn. It was written, written in 1847 by a pretty common guy. One of the priests in the village asked this guy to write a Christmas poem. And he wrote these words. And a few years afterwards, it was put to music. Let me show you and read for you these words. O Holy Night from 1847. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul for the first time felt its worth. A thrill of hope the weary and waiting world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Oh, fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angels' voices. Oh, night divine. That night when Christ was born. Oh, night. Oh, holy night. Oh, night divine. Let's bow our heads.